You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. I got her because I wanted to have like a service, psychiatric service dog, basically. And she has way more feelings than I do. Mostly pout, play, and cuddle. (laughs) But extreme. (laughs) Extreme. Extreme play, extreme cuddle. And you said pout? Mm-hmm. Oh, she's, she's an excellent powder. Yeah. Okay. She's also, um, she likes having a den. And so she'll go under the chair in my living room and pout under there. <laughs> what makes her pout? Not playing or not cuddling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Welcome to The Boost, conversations with people promoting mental health. And I am so happy to be here with Linnea Johnson, who is an author and a speaker and a mental health advocate and somebody who wears many, many hats and somebody who has a poodle hiding under their desk right now named Candace that we'll learn more about, I hope. And Linnea, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. It's very cold here in Illinois, as we discussed a little before. (laughs) Um, I think it's a high of three today. Balmy three. <laughs> a balmy three. It feels like four though. That's the good thing. Yeah. It's the it's the it's the frozen humidity that gets you. <laughs> <laughs> Two days ago it was like feels like negative thirty one. I'm from Seattle, so that is that's just death. <laughs> so we we have this in common. We just learned is that um we both moved east. I'm just north of Nashville in Kentucky. And you, I came from Southern California. You came from Seattle over to Illinois not too long ago. Yeah. Okay. How's that been? How's that been? (laughs) What's the difference? Well, um, I definitely prefer cities. So I'm for the first time living in a little bit smaller town. Um, I grew up actually in a small town for the first part of my life, but found I prefer cities. Um, but it's, it's great here. It's, um, what's been helpful is the university has a large international population, so it still feels very diverse, which is important to me. Um, but definitely getting used to a smaller location, Christmas, (laughs) things aren't open or (laughs) things like that. Sundays, Sundays, um, cold and hot. Seattle's kind of (laughs) like, in the middle. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I'm reading my autobiography still because <laughs> I, I grew up in a tiny town in Northern California. I went back at one point and my friend asked me, you know, how many people were, lived in your town? And I said, I don't really know. I was a kid at the time, but maybe 20,000 people. There were 2000 people in the town. <laughs> I was like off by a factor of 10. And, uh, and I love cities too. So I, I, um, I don't live in a huge city now, but being able to work and play, my business is based in Nashville, a lot of friends in Nashville. But what's surprising, and I don't know if this is credit to like FedEx being located in Louisville or whatever, but 
we get amazing sushi here. We have an amazing sushi place and uh, we attract a lot of businesses and many of which are international like Sumitomo and other businesses. And then we have an amazing Indian uh, food place called India Oven, which is like people fly in for this food. So that is a treat if you can find your places. Yeah. And being on from the West Coast, I was definitely, you probably get this, um, nervous to have sushi or fish being in the middle of the country. But we actually have a really good sushi place here too, um, a couple. And so it's been, <laughs> it's hard for me to get away from that when I just want to eat salmon for every meal. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. Pacific Northwesterner. Pacific <laughs> Northwesterner. Yeah, my dad's whole side of the family is from Portland, Oregon. And uh, so we would go, we would go to Portland for the holidays, or we would go down to Southern California where my mom's family is from. So I love that side of the country. And I love, and this is, this is a true fact. This is like when I, uh, when I get old, I say like as a salmon, I'm going to return to like the Northern California coastline where we would like fish for steelhead and which I think is a combo of a trout and a salmon. They fight like bears, you know, when you're fishing. <laughs> but that coastline, that rocky, rugged coastline and the the cloud cover and the temperature, uh, it was similar in San Diego. It's like you walk out and you're like, oh, it's 72 degrees and sunny again, you know. Um, I think there's a creative agency called that there because it's like, oh, yeah, that's the norm. So the heat and the cold is is tough. Yeah. And yeah. I I'm definitely the person that like the, the bad weather in Seattle never bothered me. I would go for a walk in the rain because it was just mist and it didn't bother me. But here I'm like, oh, I don't like, I don't want to go outside if it's too cold or if it's too hot. I'm mm -hmm. such a baby with it. Yep. Yeah, me too. I'm totally a baby. I totally am like inside my cave, my HVAC cave, I'm like where it's always 72. Um, <laughs> Tell, so we do a couple of things to kick things off. Uh, we're off and rolling already, but um, we do a, the virtual hug, which is tell us something you're grateful for or somebody you're grateful for. And then we'll do the uh, the shameless plug where you talk about the work you're doing. But let's start with the virtual hug. Sure. Well, you mentioned my poodle, so I might just use her because she's easy. Um, she's sleeping on her back, like under the desk right now, snoring. So I'm grateful for her silly little self. <laughs> she's she's a special one. She's very, um, I got her because I wanted to have like a service, psychiatric service dog basically. And she has way more feelings than I do. Mostly pout, play, and cuddle. <laughs> but extreme. <laughs> extreme, extreme play, extreme cuddle. And you said pout? Mm -hmm. oh, she's, she's an excellent powder yeah okay. she's also um she likes having a den and so she'll go under the chair in my living room and pout under there <laughs> what makes her pout not playing or not cuddling <laughs> <laughs> the first the all other the two time, things candace all the time candace and she's a poodle uh, is it a american poodle is that what it is did, yeah, she's like the mid-size. The mid-size. I can't remember what they're called. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's like 40 pounds. So I can still mm -hmm. wrestle with her, but she's not 80 pounds. Yeah. 
but you can't wrestle with her for nine hours a day, which is what she demands or else she'll pout under the desk in her cave. She does wear out, but then you have to give her cuddles and full attention. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Velcro dog to the extreme. I'm impressed with poodles though. I have had experiences with poodles and actually I have a golden doodle right now. And, uh, it's part poodle and it's brilliant. I mean, it's definitely the smartest dog on the block. Um, partly because I had a dog before this that I didn't do any training with and it ruled our life. It ran our life and, uh, it's terrible experience. And so dog training is always for the owner, you know? So I went through dog training. Uh, if I was going to have another dog, I was like, well, certainly the first rule is I'm like, I'm going to have to feel comfortable with it. Not like considering eating my child, you know, <laughs> like, like I couldn't leave that dog alone with anybody like kid or otherwise. Uh, so my second dog, we did break it nicely. You know, it was 99% love and 1% tough love and um, say what you want. Like the dog was never hurt, but it was certainly understood. Like you are not the alpha in this house and know your role and you're going to be the best thing. So you know, we have an eight-year-old daughter and it's, it's just the best thing to have in the house, but they're so smart, those poodles. Yeah. And she has been, I we were talking a little bit about this before, like when we got her a year, we've only had her a year, she was very prim and proper and very, she's very smart. Um, and she had really good manners. She still does, but it's been nice as we watch her kind of like get into herself and become this kind of silly, weird dog. Um, and I keep looking down at her for those who can't see. <laughs> no one can see her. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You'll have so to send us a picture. Nice I'll, we'll cut it into the episode, a picture of your dog. <laughs> is she picking up on your vibe? Is that like, is that like, you know, how dogs, they, they're, tr- they're pack animals. So they're picking up the energy in the house. I mean, maybe, yeah, a little bit. Um, we definitely, we went to the obedience for ourselves too. Like right when we got her, we went and learned because we have my husband and I neither of us had dogs since we were kids. And Mm -hmm. so we wanted to teach ourselves how to have a dog. Um and I think that that's helped. She's really good at listening and but yeah, maybe the emotional part, I think she came with that though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nurture nature. Yeah. Um, she also came from a house full of dogs and now she's the only dog. I think that's a big part too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, she can have us all to herself. Yeah. Because she thinks you guys are dogs too, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's like, <laughs> we know that we know the difference, but I think from them, they're like, oh yeah, this is my pack. I'm one of these people. Yeah. Um, tell us your shameless plug. Tell us about the work you're doing and your book and whatever else you want to kind of brag about or you want to let people know about? Sure. So I am actually just starting a new adventure, I guess I would say. Um, I have been a mental health advocate for uh, a decade or more. I published my book, uh, Perfect Chaos, when I was young. So like early 20s, 2012. So it's been out for a long time. And I did a lot of public speaking and writing around that. But I've always had a additional jobs. Um, so for the first time, I'm actually just moving into full-time, um, 
advocacy and consulting. Along the way, I also I worked in policy, disability policy, and health research, and I worked for a corporate real estate doing change management, um, and gained all kinds of skills that it's it's exciting. I can now kind of plug into this and have as a consultant. So one of the things I'm really passionate about is workplace mental health and how to do that in a way that we're actually talking about the, the policies that need to happen and the strategy and that it can't be just like one-offs, right? Um, and so being able to take all my experience in change management and policy and think through the strategy makes me excited. Mm -hmm. What's a, what's a, like an ideal customer for you? What's a dream customer, either a logo or just a description of the type of organization? I think someone, I think someone or an organization that is really, they, they want to make real change. They want to really push the, the envelope and, and not, and do it in a way that's going to be lasting. Um, they're not afraid to do hard things, um, to think about the what they need to change in their budget, what they need to change in their culture. Um, Cause it's not, it's not an easy process and to challenge biases and to challenge discrimination and to call it out. Um, yeah. Someone or a company that's really brave in that aspect, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. So you, when you say someone, uh, would it be someone within a company or can you, can you work with individuals on this? Like, you know, their personal brand, or is it somebody because they're the change agent in a organization? Yeah. So I'm, when I say someone or an organization, I think, I think a lot about leadership needing to make that change. It needs to be both sides. Mm -hmm. So it could be someone on the ground level that's bringing it in, but it, it needs to be leadership as well. And so a lot of what I do is also helping support leadership to bring in the voices of people with the lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's huge. I think, yeah, you could certainly insert that from the ground up or from a grassroots initiative or have some champion at that level. But I mean, for me, the more I learned about companies, the more I learned that, um, you know, the CEO is, is the head of the organization and, uh, we've dis we can discount that. Um, we've discounted it in our own health, you know, we've like put mental health in a silo way out in the last field, you know, the farthest field for biological health is like, Oh, we'll get there, but mostly we need to focus on orthopedics or whatever. It's like, okay, well, we're wagging the dog. And so for, you know, for change to happen, if you have a reticent CEO or executive team or leadership team, that's just not, actually authentically into it and ready mm -hmm. and willing to play the long game. That's where it's, that's, it's so hard to make change happen. It seems like. Yeah. And we, I mean, we're seeing people want a company with a mission that they're following behind. And so I think when we think about marketing, sometimes we're getting marketing that I feel like is what they feel they should do, not what they actually are trying to make changes in. Hmm. Um, the other piece is just helping leadership. I, I said like people with lived experience, but also those leaders that have lived experience to help them be vulnerable and talk about their own experiences and use that as a power too. Yeah. The, the, 
absolute power that we give clinicians, there's an argument to be made for, you know, defaulting and deferring to expertise. And uh, I think we discount the advocate and the, the lived experience and the absolute power that people have to change the world once they really start working on the inside and looking inside and making change, even if it feels uh, incremental. Like I was having a conversation yesterday with a person and, um, and he was talking about how who he was six years ago or who he was, you know, as an abused child or a child in an abusive home um, is so drastically different, but people still have him labeled as certain things, you know, from six years ago or from his childhood. So, uh, you know, how do you, how do you, as somebody who's an expert in change management, like how do you go about making change happen? That's a fascinating topic for me. And you have to probably see some trends that are the common mistakes. And then of course, every situation is a little different. I mean, you walk into one hospital and it's like, okay, I've seen that one hospital. I can't make universal decisions about this, but what do you see as like the real factors that go into transformation and change for people or organizations? People. I think that we, we can't do enough to listen to and ask people to share their experience. Um, it needs to go back and forth. It needs to be a feedback loop. You need to ask people how they're feeling um, and really acknowledge that there's not always a safe way for them to tell us. So find a way. I mean, there's so much happening right now that we could get into about psychological safety, um, and bullying in the workplace. So finding a way to ensure that people can contribute their thoughts and their fears, um, whether that's an anonymous survey, something like that, um, and then build the change around something that's going to work for everyone. I mean, obviously not all the time you can, <laughs> but, <laughs> and, and to find the people that are concerned or have resistance and work with them to figure out what it is that that's holding them back. Um, is that something that needs to be addressed? Is it something maybe you for like your leadership forgot to address that, you know, um, it's all about people to me. Mm -hmm. Everything I do is always wanting to hear how people are feeling about, you know, the process or what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it's about the people and it's about the emotional awareness, uh, which is, that's quite the transformation, uh, from a macro standpoint, you know, from mm -hmm. like the industrial age to the information age and the, the pendulum swing of, um, preferred uh, characteristics or strengths, you know, that a company would be looking for strictly from a quote unquote human resources perspective. And it's gotten to be a lot, uh, again, air quotes, a lot softer, like softer skills, like emotional intelligence. You know, we saw sort of books popping up 10, 15 years ago that were signaling this change in the world. And, um, and I always, I always go back to this quote by uh, one of the smartest people who's ever lived in the world, Tesla, 
who said, basically, it's inevitable that women are going to run the world at some point, you know, from a gender perspective. And I was like, well, I mean, he wasn't kidding. Like, there's a reason, you know, it's kind of an amazing thing to say, but it does feel like, uh, you know, if if you looked at it, um, I don't know, across skill sets, that there is a there's a major transformation happening in the workplace and that it's not always comfortable because just to wrap this point up, I've worked in like a construction manufacturing environment and it's, I mean, it was very uncomfortable and for a number of reasons and I won't get into all those, but just wildly uncomfortable for me who's seen a range of workplaces. And so I love running a company. I love being able to kind of um, just experience like, who am I working with and how does this feel? And and how do we talk about like Martin Luther King Jr. Day, you know, as somebody who's not an expert, but wants to honor that work and that person. This, I mean, it's very complicated to run a company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's so interesting to think about where we've come from, where my parents came from. Um, and my work, it's like, sometimes I feel like I'm the weird touchy feely, like woo woo person that's coming in and talking about feelings. Sure. Um, but I mean, we think about suicide statistics and white men, it's so high. Um, it needs to be acknowledged and yes, that's taking it to the extreme, um, of when we're talking about like change resistance or things like that. But really when it comes to humans, it's so hard to talk about our feelings and it's not always safe to do so, but I'm hoping that this progression continues so we can get to be a world where we can acknowledge that everyone, even, even ones that are told to just be tough and hold themselves up. Um, it's just not a safe response to, I mean, I'm very emotional too. So, um, I live with bipolar disorder and so it's just kind of who I am, but every, every time I've been really vulnerable with people and this has been from a 60 year old white man, CEO to a kid, you know, as soon as I'm vulnerable, I always hear, I've never told anyone, but, Mm. um, and you find that everyone has a story, you know, everyone has something, um, and to circle back to something like change management, everyone has the worry of what's going to happen to me. What's next? Am I safe? So, yeah. I'm, I'm excited and hopeful that we're going to start acknowledging that more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we still do have our, our little lizard brains inside us, you know, that are super hardwired for uh, survival, as I understand it, you know, like, it's just kind of like, you think that you and I are transmitting like cold, hard facts, you know, from our neocortex to the other neocortex. And it's like, no, those are going up through like a, a primordial soup of should I eat this thing or should I fight this thing or should I run away from this thing? Like it's it's very complicated and it's why it's why I think there's a number of applications. Like it's why we don't really learn until there's like emotional openness, until emotion is present. You, I, I think it's really hard to learn things unless you have that teacher, you know, where it's like, oh, that teacher 
really just supported me and came alongside me. And, 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 you know, you hear those stories like, and now I'm a doctor because, you know, you found that one person who is like your support and they can get you through a long, uh, hard journey simply because, you know, I'm safe and I'm, I can do this. You know, we get this negative self-talk in us otherwise sort of that comes through. And there's a lot, you know, like you said, bipolar, and there's a lot of um, mental health and mental illness challenges. And some of those are maybe more complex than we'll ever be able to quote unquote solve for, or maybe it's not a solution that we need, but it's something, a, a different perspective instead. Um, but I, th I think that safety is so difficult in the workplace because of the incentive structure. Mm -hmm. I know. Or like, well, if I, if I expose myself, then I lose my job or I, you know, somebody else will be stronger than me or appear stronger than me. Do you run into that, that sort of uh, yeah, imbalance? I mean, it's really, I, I was um, going to write a series of things around like being vulnerable in the workplace and coming out about it. And then with recent, um, deaths happening and uh bullying and black women that are really it's like hard for me to talk about yep. i just feel like it it's this place now where talking about being vulnerable in the workplace is not it's it's beyond that um we have things like the american disability act to protect to protect us but you have to ask for accommodations to get those um, you have to disclose to get accommodations, but if it's not safe to do so, then, then there's just no way, um, to get that support in a lot of settings. I've been really lucky in my personal life that I've always felt safe, but I'm also someone that is of privilege and, you know, I have the finances to support me if I need to step out of something. Um, right. I, I'm a white woman. I, you know, there's a lot of things I, I present as someone that is high functioning, which is not a word that, you know, I want to use. Um, but all of those things I think have made it so that I can be vulnerable in a way that so many people can't. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm hoping that this is something that will be addressed um, as we continue to kind of talk about policy change and things, but it's a hard time right now in the DEI world, as you know, and looking into mm -hmm. all those pieces of diversity and policy and. Yeah. Yeah. And that pendulum swing seems to be coming back, like with some force, you know, like some things being repealed or reviewed again. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on DEI. Um, but what would, uh, tell me more about high functioning and why that's a, that's a phrase you would rather not sort of use or employ. Yeah. So I, because I've done a lot of work in disability policy um, and think of myself as beyond a mental health advocate, as a disability advocate, mm -hmm. I think a lot about language. Um, high functioning is a term that actually I just re I was using it up until recently. And I was uh, told by a friend that it's, it is something that for, it's like a labeling that 
if someone is not high functioning, um, it hurts. It will oftentimes refer to, you know, how someone, how well someone's doing with a disability or health. It can also hurt people that are quote high functioning because you have to be in this level. That's something that I've struggled with is, you know, keeping myself in this box of perfectionism. Um, and there's just, there's so much terminology that I think these days we don't even recognize we're using that is ableist in nature or, you know, it's, it's something I think about a lot as a communications person too. So yeah. yeah. Have you come across people letting you know that you need to update language or. Oh yeah, just, absolutely. I'm like, a, I'm, <clears throat> I'm trying to stay extremely open to that because of my ignorance. So, you know, it was, uh, I've been, I've been seriously, I would say working around mental health industry for five years now with the mental health marketing conference. Um, and it's such a learning curve for me. You know, I sort of had walked myself into talk therapy with a licensed professional counselor, uh, sort of under the guise of career guidance. And we pretty quickly got into uh, shame, which I did not expect. It was not on the list of things I was going to talk about. And it and emotional intelligence is really like emotional awareness. You know, he would like point to a chart on the wall and be like, what are you feeling on this uh, emotion wheel today? And it was so simple and so eye-opening for me. It was like my eyes opened for the first time. And so to talk about, you know, along the way, like things like I remember suddenly becoming aware of people and myself saying things like that's, oh, that's crazy. Or that's, that's just insane. Or man, you know, it's like, and, um, then the phrase died by suicide, you know, rather than committed suicide. And that was a learning opportunity for me. And the other day, somebody sort of rebuffed SMI or serious mental illness, you know, for sort of these same reasons, uh, that it becomes, it becomes a serious, you know, condition that is like, insurmountable or, you know, it, words, words matter incredibly. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, um, and in the audiences that I, I work around and I'm not an expert. So I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm more like the plumbing or the internet where I just pass experts, hopefully to other experts back and forth. So we have a lot of marketers who really need to learn the language of mental health and, almost to the point that I want to put together like a certification course around, Hey, here's like, we're going to go through how we're talking about mental health today. And even some people come to that topic and they're like, what is mental health? And it's a great question, you know, and, and what is mental illness and what's the difference and, and then get into some nuance beyond that. But then we also have clinicians who are coming from a very different angle and they know very little about marketing or um, connecting with an audience out in the great big world because, you know, they didn't have that schooling. Yeah. And then, I mean, you get into like the disability world and you have the medical model versus like the social model. And we're thinking about disability in a way that is it the world that is causing the issue or is it us? Um, and then that gets into a whole nother thinking was, about language. Say, say more about that. Yeah. So, you know, thinking about how language has impacted me as someone, I originally 
I think the, the first big speech that I did when I was in my tw early 20s, someone came up and said, oh, you should say um, you live with bipolar. And I actually said that at the beginning of this, but these days I actually say I am bipolar. Oh. And it's, it's a different yes. for people that don't know. There is a difference. There's person first and there's identity first language. Um, and working in the professional sense, I, even in disability organizations, we use person first language, um, because a lot of times that's preferred when you're speaking about someone else, but in certain communities like the deaf community or, um, autistic community, some of them prefer identity first because they, um, and for me, I prefer it these days because originally I was told, oh, Bipolar is something you have. It's not something right. that you yeah. are. Yeah, it's like leukemia. I have leukemia. I am not leukemia would yeah. be the kind of example in that case. Exactly. These days I'm like, but bipolar, that's assuming bipolar is something that is bad and that is something I don't want identify with or that's not part of me, but it is who I am. It's, I mean, it's not all of who I am, but it's part of me. Um, I also didn't used to call, I didn't used to think I had a disability. I wouldn't put mental health or mental oh, illness into disability, but that's also because of that internalized, you know, ableism that I thought disability was like something negative that I didn't want to have. So it's been a whole process of dealing with myself, stigma, dealing with understanding how language impacts even yourself so much. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And our perception of, of what we're living, yeah. of how we're living and what we're living with or what we're living in, because you mentioned deaf and I've never heard a person say, I have deafness, you know, they would say I am deaf and that's, you know, to contrast that with I have, or I am. That's interesting. That's more for me to think about in terms of the nuance. Um, because like my, my recent sort of learning was, um, yeah, I have uh, bipolar disorder, you know, and rather than, and I don't know that like, I'm so, I'm so careful, I guess, because I know so little in some respects, you know, that I always do love to talk with people like you because it shines so much light on from the lived experience standpoint, rather than some um, sort of disconnected uh, national conversation, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. I would much rather sit down with one person and, and get so much more context rather than this is what's being said, you know, on the global stage today about mental health. Yeah. And it's that piece of like, the more, you know, the more you don't know, <laughs> you know, the more, you know, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Having these conversations is so helpful. And I mean, that's how I kind of keep up to date on as many things as I can, but I always know that there's things I don't know about language because it's also changing all the time. That's where it's hard with marketing too. Um, I mean, when I worked for the ADA National Network, this is the American Disability National Network, we would, you know, put things out on social media. Um, so always thinking about what language to use around disabilities. And then the really important part of having the someone share their experience or 
you know, if we're going to be talking about someone, have them tell it um, when it comes to marketing. I, I don't know if you, you saw, I submitted um, for the conference a thing about inspiration porn. Have you heard that term? No. So it was originally um, created by this amazing advocate, Stella Young, um, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but it's essentially, it's, it's hard to kind of define, but you know, that thing of the only disability in life is a bad attitude. And it's like a kid that is just doing something normal, like with in a wheelchair playing basketball, but it's supposed to make us who, you know, aren't in wheelchairs, um, feel like, oh, well we can do it if, if he can, which it's just like things like that have kind of come, hopefully they're not doing it as much, but it's hard when it comes to marketing, you see all the time with inspiration ads, right? And yeah. you think about like, Super Bowl. We're gonna, how many Super Bowl ads are we going to see that are going to make us cry? And in what time is it okay? And what time is it on the back of, of making someone else feel like belittled or, mm -hmm. um, so I, I think so much about that. And my husband's uh, in the medical field and worked in rehabilitation medicine. And we always talk about, well, isn't like, isn't it helpful sometimes to be inspired? Like what if, weren't you inspired by someone else that lived with bipolar? Well, um, but it's, it's little things like in Stella Young's Ted talk, which you should check out. She's like, yeah, I'm inspired by cool hacks. Like I can plug my phone into my wheelchair, but not necessarily, <laughs> you know, so it's complicated, but yeah, it's another thing I think about all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. I saw that come through. Um, and I hadn't heard that before. And, um, just to kind of to circle back to the, the beginning of what you were saying there, um, with words and how it's like a living language and how there's so much context around words and that we need in order to communicate, we do need little working models that move us ahead quickly sometimes. And then at other times, like we'll see at the end of the year, like the, the dictionary will like officially accept, you know, the new words like Riz or drip or on fleek or whatever it is, you know, and there's a little eye roll that goes along with that. Like really we're letting Riz into the dictionary. It's like, yeah, actually we are because like stay limber and stay mobile to what's a, ch a changing dynamic. And that's, a, that's a fun example, but it's also, there's also a tremendous opportunity to stay flexible to um, the immense amount of change that's happening right in front of our nose, like hiding in plain sight that we can be more attuned to if we think slowly sometimes, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. you have to think fast. And then sometimes it's so beneficial to be in a room by yourself, quiet thinking. And that's like, half of the meditative benefit is simply like clearing it out. And, <clears throat> and it's a great source of unhappiness to not be able to do that in our lives. So, um, yeah, I applaud you for continuing the conversation and I've like, I've really benefited today talking with you. Um, this is our first, this is our first conversation. Um, and unfortunately we're running out of time. Um, but, um, 
I'd love to talk with you again, talk with you more and definitely wish you the best in your consulting, um, you know, employment and entrepreneurial path forward. That's exciting. Thank you. This has been great. Cover a lot of different topics today. <laughs> yeah, we ranged as, <laughs> as it happens. Uh, yeah. Um, tell folks where um, you'd like them to find you or connect with you in social media or digital world. Sure. Um, I have a website, lineajohnson.com. So just my first and last name.com. Linea with one N. Yeah. And uh, I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn. And then my book is called Perfect Chaos. And for those who can see, I can hold it up because this is the copy I was supposed to send. Just the Steve that I did not. Um, but I let, wrote it. Let it be mom. noted. I don't have that so. book yet, but I'm excited to get that book. I'm excited. <laughs> and that's the one you wrote when you were in your 20s? Or yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Send that to me once. Um, once it's no longer that we're living in the North pole, <laughs> I mean, simply to save like the, the postal workers, you know, like, let's think about them. Like they don't, they don't need to carry a book through zero degrees right now. Yes. Well, thank you. This has been great. Likewise. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Okay. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.